0: I'd like to welcome our latecomers. Thanks for joining us. Um, Our next speaker, I've followed his career with some interest, uh, actually, most of my life. Uh, Actually, I'm the next speaker. (laughs) So we're going to talk about new drugs for HIV. I have no disclosures. Objectives are to identify investigational new HIV drugs in existing classes and to identify investigational new drugs in newer classes. And finally, to identify regimens most prom- or drugs most promising for treatment-experienced patients. So let's start with a question. Which investigational antiretroviral drug listed here is most likely to benefit a heavily treatment-experienced patient, and you can see the choices. So vote for and one. Is so that a show tune? What song was that? Was it? It was Cats, really? Oh my gosh. Yes, I know. just like a bad burrito. It's coming back. (laughs) Think about that one. Okay. I'm not as nice as Dr. Brooks, so I'm not going to tell you what the right answer here is. But you can see that the audience didn't agree, so we're going to talk about that. Okay. Another question, which investigational class of HIV drugs is farthest along in development, is it an RNase H inhibitor, a maturation inhibitor, a CD4 attachment inhibitor, a CXCR4 antagonist, or a CD8 agonist? 1978. I had hair down to here, (laughs) if you can believe it. Okay, let's see what people said. Okay, hey, only 25% of you recognize the correct answer, which is that it's a CD4 attachment inhibitor that's farthest along. Maturation inhibitor. Uh, well, I'll update you today on what's going on with that class. RNAse H inhibitor. There's never been one tested. CXCR4 antagonist. They have been tested, but the candidate drug actually failed in that class. There's no additional one. And I made up CD8 antagonist, and 4% of you voted for that, so. (laughs) All right, so we've got some learning to do. So the news is that the pipeline for HIV drugs continues to be populated, as you can see here. Um, I've broken it down for the existing classes, so new nukes, new non-nukes, new protease inhibitors, and then new types of entry inhibitors, new integrase inhibitors and the brand new class of maturation inhibitors. And as you can see, I've broken them down. Some of them are uh, really in advanced development. And what I'd like to do with this talk is to pick out the ones that either have unique properties that are worth knowing about or are farthest along in development. And that's how I chose among the many compounds that you see listed here. One more question. Which new HIV drug is being investigated for both treatment and prevention? You can see the choices there. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yeah, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. What show? Ha- Everybody knows that. How many people have seen Hamilton? Raise your hand. Wow. Nice. OK, but enough about Hamilton. <laughs> OK, 62% of you picked the correct answer. It is cabotegravir is being developed for both treatment and prevention. OK, so now let's talk. Uh, nucleosides, we have a lot of them. We've had them for many years. What would be our biggest need in this class? And you might say more convenient. Can you get more convenient than one pill once a day? Well, there's some, an interesting compound on the horizon. This compound is in early development, MK8591, also called EFDA. It is a nucleoside analog. It's a non-obligate chain terminator. And uh, just when you thought it was safe to learn all the abbreviations in HIV, here's a new one. Nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. It's an NRTTI, so it inhibits the reverse transcriptase by preventing translocation as the enzyme moves along the template. It has potent antiviral activity in the test tube, not only against HIV one, but also HIV two, and it's active against multi-drug resistant strains of HIV. But what's the interest, the real interest in this compound? And that is how long acting it is. So here's clinical data that was presented at the CROI meeting. At time zero here, this is a small study, only six people, um, HIV-infected people took this drug as monotherapy, one dose at time zero, and you can see ten days later they continue to have suppression of about 1.8 logs. So this is an extremely long-lasting agent, which would lend itself to weekly dosing. Now we've had Daily dosing for a long time now. People have talked about every other day dosing, but many of us who treat patients think, well, that might confuse people. Once a week really might be a step forward. They went on to show some animal data, and they used a parenteral formulation, so this is an injection. Two different ones shown in red and green. This is animal data, but what you can see here is one injection parenterally actually lasted for months, so a nucleoside that potentially you could inject and that would last for months. It's in early development, it's only phase one, but this is an example of where the future of antivirals might be, weekly dosing or even monthly dosing or less frequent dosing than that. And in RTIs, again, we've had these compounds for many years. What, what could be better than what we have today? Well, potentially less toxic and better tolerable than the ones we have. Active against non-nucleoside resistant viruses would be helpful, and fewer drug, drug interactions. The candidate drug in this class is Duraverine. It is an investigational NNRTI. It's potent at a low milligram dose, so that lends itself to co-formulations, which is always something we like to see. It is metabolized by the familiar CYP3A4 enzyme but it's neither an inhibitor nor an inducer and that's in contrast to the other NNRTIs and that may mean fewer drug-drug interactions. And another quality of this compound, it is active in vitro against a number of NNRTI resistant viral strains. So you can pick out some of the more common mutations here that this compound has activity against. K103N associated with efavirenz, Y181C associated uh, with niverapine, and even combinations, the E138K is associated with real rilpivirine or etravirine resistance. So there is uh, potential there for activity. In a phase one study that was published earlier this year, small study of um, 18 treatment naive people who were randomized either to placebo shown in green or one of two doses of Duraverine over a short seven days. And you can see the Duraverine arms associated with about a 1.5 log drop in viral load levels. So potent antiviral activity of this compound. And that's supported moving forward with a phase two study, which was presented at the CROI meeting this year by uh, Jose Gattel. And this was uh, treatment naive individuals, a much bigger study, several hundred people, with detectable viral loads above 1,000 and CD4s above 100. Everyone received TDF FTC and then they were randomized in green to Duraverine, or the control arm in gray was efavirenz. We're looking at the proportions suppressed to less than 40 and you can see by the end of 48 weeks, it was just about 80% in both of the groups without significant difference. So showing comparable virologic activity a standard efavirenz-based regimen. What were the differences? Uh, well, as you can see here, this is one or more adverse events, and uh, the important line to look at here are what the investigators considered drug-related adverse events or side effects, and you can see 31% of the duraverine group versus uh, nearly twice as many, 56% of the efavirenz group, so better tolerated in this small study. I should say, uh, this phase two draverine data supported moving forward into phase three, and this compound does continue in development. What I haven't shown you here is activity against patients with NNRTI resistant virus, so we haven't seen those kind of data just yet, despite the in vitro activity against these resistant viral strains. Integrase inhibitors, we've certainly come to use these. We're familiar with the three that we have today. What could be better than what we have today? Well, something that's active against integrase-resistant virus could come in handy, or potentially more convenient. Now, again, our integrase inhibitors today are either twice a day or once a day. What could be more convenient than that? Well, again, maybe less frequent dosing. So a couple candidate compounds in this class. The first is Bictegravir, so it's like, uh, you know, Bic, take your Bic pen and write a prescription for Bictegravir. I'm sure they're going to use that in their uh, advertising campaign. Um, what's shown for you here is in vitro activity. So we're looking at the four available Integrase inhibitors, the three approved ones, RAL, l and dolutegravir. And what you see here, this is test tube data a series of viral strains with common mutations associated with integrase inhibitor resistance. And you may not be able to read it, but you have single mutations, double mutations, and even triple mutations. The higher the bar here, the more resistance in the test tube among the various strains. So uh, you can see lots of resistance to both raltegravir in blue and lvitegravir in orange, particularly with the multiply resistant strains. And then you see dolutegravir retaining activity, um, a couple of strains here that show reduced activity to dolutegravir, the new compound bictegravir, you can see there's a suggestion at least from the test tube data that it has enhanced activity against some of these more resistant strains. Of course, this is test tube data. We now have phase one data that was presented at the ASM microbe meeting earlier this year. So this was 20 people who were naive or off ART. I should say this was presented by a speaker later in our program, Joel Gallant. I left your name off the slide, Joel. I'm sorry. Viral load level was 10 to 400,000, CD4 was greater than 200, and they were randomized either to placebo, shown in gray, or four doses of Bictegravir. And you could see at the higher two doses of Bictegravir, after a short 10 days of dosing, You have 2 to 2.4 log decrease in viral load level showing substantial virologic activity of Bictegravir. I believe the candidate dose that's going to launch from this study is between these two doses at 75 milligrams moving forward. So there are uh, phase two studies, which I believe are fully enrolled. We're anticipating those results, perhaps at the Cori meeting, I don't know for sure. And then large phase 3 studies that are also either in progress or open. So this compound is uh, moving forward in development. Cabotegravir is an integrase inhibitor that's similar in structure to dolutegravir and has a similar resistance profile. Um, It was available and is available in an oral formulation. And one of the first studies showed that it had potent virologic activity. But the excitement about this is the nanotechnology formulation allowing it to be an injectable agent. The half-life is extraordinarily long at 21 to 50 days. So uh, what we're looking at here again is single-dose data. This is pharmacokinetic data looking at drug levels, so at time zero. the uh, participants got either IM dosing or sub-Q dosing with multiple different doses. The details aren't important, but what is important is how long this drug sticks around after an injection. Usually when you look at these kind of curves, we're looking at uh, hours or days. Here we're looking at weeks. So you can see 48 weeks later, some of these arms, after a single injection, people still had detectable levels of cabotegravir. There's some new data from the R4P meeting that was just in Chicago that about 17% of people have persistently detectable levels even after a year after a single injection of cabotegravir. So this certainly supports monthly or even less frequent dosing is being explored. And the compound in early studies has been well tolerated, The really side effects limited to injection site reactions. And these are different from the T20 ones that we used to know back in the old days. They're mild and uh, well-tolerated and appear to decrease over time. So what's the clinical data here? Uh, The latest study to use this is an all-injectable maintenance regimen. So it's using cab, that's cabotegravir, and then rilpivirine, which, as you know, can also be uh, available in uh, an investigational injectable So this was the Latte 2 study. In treatment-naive individuals, there were 300 people, um, all treatment-naive, who went on to the study. There was a run-in period here, because you can imagine if you have a long-lasting injectable, you'd like to know if a side effect's going to occur with that compound before you give the injection. So they started with an oral part of the study. So people took Abacavir and 3TC orally along with an oral formulation of cabotegravir. Um, That was for 20 weeks, and once they were suppressed after that time, then they were randomized to one of three maintenance options. And you can see here, one of them was to use cabotegravir and rilpivirine and dose every other month, sorry, that's the every month, every other month, and then the control arm was to continue the oral regimen. So two regiments tested here, which were all injectable, either every month or every other month. And uh, we heard the updated week 48 results at the IAS Durban meeting, and here's what they showed. So we're looking at the proportion of people suppressed to less than 50 in each of those maintenance strategies. You can see from the back of the room, the numbers are overlapping and high. So uh, over 90% of all people on the study continued to suppress their viral load levels through the end of a year. And you can see both of the injection strategies maintained as well as continuing the oral suppressive regimen. Now in subsequent analysis they found that the every other month dosing that there were several people who developed integrase resistance on that arm that was not seen in the every month injectable dosing. And so the strategy for treatment is that they are going to continue with the monthly dosing um, in further studies. So this is a phase two study and this will lend itself and support moving forward with a phase three, all injectable regimen to continue suppression of HIV. Will this come in handy for our patients? Well, I think we could all think of the kind of patient who might benefit from having a monthly injectable regimen instead of taking oral daily pills. Uh, this, again, is the efficacy, and you can see high rates over uh, are about 90% in all of the arms. And as I mentioned, uh, injection site reactions uh, are the pretty much the only side effect that's been seen. They are common. You can see that uh, 80% or higher had at least a grade one. So these are um, pretty much everyone will have an injection site reaction. I wanted to mention just one slide because Jeannie Marazzo is going to talk about PrEP later in the day, actually next. Um, but there is a PrEP study that is being designed right now with injectable cabotegravir, and this is called the HPTN-083 study. So again, many of you recognize the cab is being developed not only for HIV treatment, but for HIV PrEP. This is a large study. It's going to be 4,500 MSM throughout the Americas. And the study regimen is going to be either traditional TDF FTC, one pill once a day, or cabotegravir injections every other month. And and this study is of PrEP, so it's prevention. Uh, It is double-blinded, so all people will be taking pills and all people will receive the injections. And it's an efficacy study that's fully powered to see if this injectable form of PrEP will be non-inferior to one pill once a day PrEP. And I just wanted to point out there are uh, five sites in the New York area, so if you have people that are interested, please contact them. Bronx, Lebanon, we're doing it at Cornell at our Chelsea site, conveniently located on 23rd Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, um, Harlem Hospital, Newark, and the New York Blood Center, which is on the Upper East Side. And uh, Valerie Hughes, our coordinators in the front row, wave Val, hi Val. If uh, if you have any questions about this study, you could ask Val or me. Okay, CD4 attachment inhibitor, that's a new mechanism of action. That potentially is of the most benefit to our heavily treatment experienced patients who have experienced failure on all the traditional classes. And let me ask you with the old-fashioned way, how many of you have a patient that's failed all current drugs that you're following? Okay. So uh, let's see, 16 percent of you said yes. <laughs> so we have HIV entry inhibitors, and they stem for the three, stem from the three steps in the HIV life cycle. The very beginning, of course, HIV recognizes the CD4 receptor and binds to it through GP120. We're familiar with that. That's CD4 binding, the very first step in the life cycle. When that binding occurs, there's a conformational change in GP120, and that allows binding to the co-receptor or the chemokine receptor. And once that binding occurs, then there are fusion of the viral membrane with the host cell membrane. So the three steps of HIV entry have lent themselves to thinking about inhibitors of the steps. Of course, we're good at inhibiting co-receptor binding. So the CCR5 antagonist maraviroc is an approved drug that we use occasionally. We also know something about HIV fusion and how to inhibit it with a fusion inhibitor. And of course, in Fuvertide, although twice a day injections, it has also been used over the years. But the third step, or really the first step, CD4 attachment, we've not had an agent that's inhibiting that step. But now we do. Uh, this is the old name, BMS-663068. Just two weeks ago, it got a name. So I can tell you, Fostemzivir is the new name for this compound. It wasn't official until a couple of weeks ago. Fostemzivir is an oral HIV attachment inhibitor. It's actually a prodrug of this compound, which also just got a name, and it is Temzivir. Get it? So it's fos You take away the Fos, and Temsevir is the active agent. So it inhibits CD4 binding by binding itself to GP120. So it's not targeting the receptor, it's targeting the virus itself, the external membrane glycoprotein GP120. It can be dosed once or twice a day, and what you see here is the phase one data at multiple different doses. The details aren't important, but you can see at the highest doses, after eight days of dosing, you get over a 1.5 log reduction, showing that inhibiting this step of the life cycle leads to virologic activity. Now one thing that was interesting was that about 12% of patients had no activity of this compound whatsoever, and when they went back and looked, there was a specific polymorphism in GP120 that that confers resistance. To FOSTEMSivir without ever having taken it. So this may be another compound where we're going to need to screen for that to show activity before we use it. So this phase one data led to a phase two B study, which uh, the initial results were published in Lancet HIV last year, and then they were updated at the CROI meeting this year. And uh, as you can see here, it's fos versus uh, the control arm uh, was boosted adazanavir. The backbone here is interesting, um, unusual. It was TDF plus tegravir as a backbone, so kind of unusual. Uh, this was uh, treatment experience, but the definition was greater than one week on at least one antiretroviral drug, so not our typical definition. And they did screen for susceptibility to temzavir at baseline and this was about 250 patients. So they're randomized to one of four doses of Fostemzivir versus boosted adazanavir with the tdf raltegravir backbone. Um, Ultimately, they selected the 1,200 milligram dose of Fostemzivir based on early data and rolled everyone over to that dose. And what did they see? So altogether, at the end of the day, 61% of the Fostemzivir group was suppressed below detection versus 53%, so comparable to the adizanivir arm. And uh, side effects were similar in the two groups. As you might imagine, the boosted adizanivir group had more bilirubin elevations, but other than that, both compounds relatively well tolerated. This compound was given FDA breakthrough status um, in the summer of last year because it offers a real step forward to treatment-experienced patients. And the Phase three study in treatment experience is fully enrolled. We were a site for that at Cornell, and uh, we're anticipating those results. This is a fully-powered study of Fostemzivir in treatment-experienced patients. So we look forward to those results. That's why this compound likely has the most promise the heavily-treatment-experienced patient. That's a good fact to know, isn't it? Okay, lastly, another new mechanism of action is the maturation inhibitor. This is a novel mechanism of action. We've seen a couple of these enter clinical development, and it, we know that baseline polymorphisms for this class also will be important to consider. So how do maturation inhibitors work? In contrast to the last mechanism, the very first step in the life cycle, maturation inhibitors work on the very last step. So the HIV virions butt off from the cell, but they need subsequent processing for full infectiousness and maturity. Their polyproteins, they have polyproteins, which are long strands, which have to be chemically cleaved for full infectiousness to be conferred to these particles. So the way these are cleaved is a familiar enzyme to us, HIV protease. So it will cleave the various components of this polyprotein into their individual proteins and then that confers uh, full maturation of these particles and they can now infect the next CD4 cell that they come into contact with. So we're good at inhibiting maturation now. We use protease inhibitors which stop that chemical cleavage. But another way to do it would be to develop a class of compounds that binds them together, so preventing the protease from cleaving. And that's how the new maturation inhibitors work. So they bind to two of these components and prevent that cleavage from happening, and so the virus doesn't fully mature and is non-infectious. Now, as I mentioned, we had an older compound, baviramat, that entered clinical development, which was one of these. But it was found early on that people that had certain polymorphisms had no activity of baviramat. And it was very common. Roughly 50% of people, without ever having taken a maturation inhibitor, had polymorphisms that conferred resistance. And that's shown for you here. So these are various substitutions um, in the uh, polyprotein that I mentioned, and you can see orange is resistant, so many people had polymorphisms which conferred resistance. The next 2nd uh, ge- so-called second generation compound, 176, did demonstrate activity in the test tube even against these polymorphisms, and that led to support its clinical development. So here's the phase one study of the newer maturation inhibitor, BMS955176. It's in a small group of people, and again, they tested various doses, and you can see at the highest doses, after 10 days of dosing, roughly a 1.5 log drop in virus. So again, showing that this new mechanism of action does confer significant virologic uh, activity. So this led to a phase two study, which was recently presented at the IAS Durban meeting, um, a small study of 28 people, and they looked at various combinations. The control arm was TDF, FTC, and boosted atazanavir, and then they tested three different arms containing the maturation inhibitor with atazanavir, either boosted or unboosted. And you can see significant virologic activity there. This was the phase 2A study. The phase 2B study was planned, but just announced last week is that they are going to stop development of this particular compound. Um, The word on the street was because of GI side effects. The good news is that they have two follow-on compounds in this class. So I suspect we will be hearing more about maturation inhibitors, but this particular one will not go forward. So I'd like to uh, stop there, thank you, but let's uh, answer some questions again. Let's see if you were listening, which investigational antiretroviral drug is most likely to benefit a heavily-treatment-experienced patient? Bic, CAB, Draverine, EFDA, or Fostemsavir? Go ahead and vote. Consider yourself, yourself at home. At home. Consider yourself uh, one, of one of the furniture. So 66% of you realize that the compound with the new mechanism of action is that also has completed phase 3 development in treatment-experienced patients has the most promise for a heavily-treatment-experienced patient. So I'm going to stop there right on time. Look at that. Nice. So Fos-Temzivir went from 12% to 66%. It helps to say this is the answer to the question I'm going to ask you. All right, so I'm going to stop there. Thanks for your attention. And thank you for that thunderous applause. And uh, I'm uh, ready to take some questions from you all as well. If you have questions about new drugs, again, we have mics in the front of the room, or you can uh, have a question card if you want. Thank you. You're saving me here. I think it was the one study with Fost uh, Fos uh, When it was compared with the uh, Rezatiz, it was only it, both arms were like sixty percent, which didn't seem very high. Yeah. So the question was about that phase two study showing the virologic response rates, roughly sixty percent of the Fos regimen versus the boosted adazanavir regimen. And the question was, well, sixty percent's not really as good as we're used to seeing. Why was that? Uh, they had some dropout on the study, and that accounted for most of the difference. The fact that it was in both arms sort of substantiates that. Joel. You didn't mention ibalizumab, which is even more fun to say than severe, <laughs> And uh, it's in phase three trials with an expanded access program that's open. Do you want to comment on that? Sure. So uh, Joel points out there's another compound in development. You always have to be careful which you're picking, of course. Uh, and probably this deserves some some discussion. So Ibilizumab, I don't think it's as much fun as Fostam. Well, we could take a vote, but it's, it's, uh, it's been around for a long time. It's, it works at a very early stage, so near the CD4 attachment inhibitor stage, so it's another HIV entry inhibitor. It actually doesn't prevent attachment to the receptor. What it prevents is the conformational change in GP120, so that's interesting, so it's not the very first step, it's like the 1.5 step. This compound's been around in testing since about 2003. It is a monoclonal antibody. It's injected, so it's parenteral, and uh, there was some recent data at ID Week, seems like just last week, because it was just last week. Um, that they tested as monotherapy which did show activity of this agent and uh, it is in clinical development so it probably it's um, people should know about it they actually do have an expanded access program for it as well so that's iblizumab okay some questions here Do you worry about Q2 month prep with cab versus Q1 month, given that you said there was more resistant in the treatment studies? Um, So that's a very insightful question. The the dose of cabotegravir needed to prevent HIV, we really don't know. Um, You wanna have drug on board at the site where HIV is present, in an HIV negative person who's being exposed. So presumably what you need are good drug concentrations um, either in the rectum or the vagina. We don't know what the dose is right now. Um, I I showed you the long-term data for cabotegravir that lasts as long as a year. We know that treatment concentrations or levels might be higher potentially and so maybe The one-month dosing is more appropriate. Could you get away with less for prevention? We just don't know. So uh, I think that's part of of what's going to be studied moving forward. Um, Whether people would show up for one Q monthly uh, injections for HIV prevention, I think, is an open question. Why do grants not qualify as disclosures? That's that's like a philosophical question, isn't it? My disclosure, when I said I had no disclosures, uh, that means I have no direct payments from pharmaceutical companies or device companies, which is true. Um, I don't receive grants from any pharmaceutical companies either. We do receive grants from the NIH, so consider yourself uh, disclosed about that, and uh, the Gates Foundation as well. Any other questions for me? Yeah, Serena. So hearing about the um, long-lasting effects of some of these drugs, even up to 48 weeks after a single injection, are there concerns that people who don't tolerate the medications but then get a long-acting agent, we can't take it out of their system? Yes, that's a big concern. So once you give one of these long-acting compounds by injection, there's no way to get it out once you've done it. And that is a concern to people. That's why many people, I I think they're being developed with this oral run-in. But, of course, that won't rule out all effects, will it? So a short run-in will probably get you away from any kind of allergic reaction, maybe. But more long-term idiosyncratic reactions are still a risk with these longer-term injectables. Um, I will tell you something that I didn't in the talk, and that is they're working on implantable devices that elute antiretrovirals as well so the one i've seen the data on they've tested in monkeys is kind of a little um, almost like a depo provera kind of thing where you put it in and then it elutes tdf is what they tested over time and so that would be a device that you could actually remove it if there was a problem again the reason to mention that even though it's all, it hasn't been tested in people yet is just to say this may be the future of where we're going, so long-term injectables or long-term implantable antiretroviral drugs. Okay, if there's no more questions for me, then I'm gonna ask you guys some more. We have a couple of demographic questions.